Hello, this is R. Lee Proctor. Welcome to an Atomic Bombshell Extra, an even deeper dive into the life of Clara Minx-Devlin, the woman that J. Edgar Hoover rightly called the most dangerous woman alive. If you've heard our 10-part podcast, you know all about her astonishing life, her romances with JFK, Truffaut, Castro, Howard Hughes, and her career as a film noir goddess and the queen of 1950s teen exploitation. That latter aspect of her career is the subject of our extra today, how Minx Devlin came to make Destroy All Teenagers, a film that dwells near the pinnacle of bad filmmaking. I'm here with my friend and colleague, Skylar DeWolf, film scholar and historian at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. Now, Skylar, where does Destroy All Teenagers sit in the pantheon of bad filmmaking? I would say it sits very high in the pantheon of worst films ever made, right up there with Plan 9 from Outer Space, Robot Monster, Glenn or Glenda, They Saved Hitler's Brain, Manos, Hands of Fate. And what do all these movies have in common? They have in common micro-budgets, which lead to surreal, nonsensical plots with amateur acting. In other words, bad movie nirvana. <laughs> it is that. So how did Destroy All Teenagers come about? Well, Minx Devlin thought she finally had it made. She just starred and co-produced her biggest drive-in hit picture, They Came in Outer Space. The way this film was cleaning up across the country should have put Minx on easy street for the rest of her life. Unfortunately, she was still married to the film's writer, producer, director, Herbert W. Zussman. Now, at an early divorce hearing, Zussman revealed that he just taken a half million of the film's proceeds and put it all on Ingemar Johansson to beat Floyd Patterson for the heavyweight championship of the world. He made this bet with some, uh, let us say, uh, shady underworld figures. Patterson KO'd Johansson. Now Herb had to make good on the bet or he was going to be wearing a cement kimono at the bottom of Lake Michigan. Yep. So Zuzman hatches an ingenious and naturally illegal scheme, which is to charge money to be in his movie. And the one who pays the most gets the biggest part. In other words, a total bunco scheme. So uh, Zuzman made up a poster to try to sell Minx on the idea of being in the movie and, and to get and how he was going to raise money. And here's what here's the here's the what he handed her. This is from her own autobiography. It said your big chance. If you've ever thought of starring in a Hollywood movie, if you've worked for your big break but been hounded by bum luck, if you'll do whatever it takes to make your dream come true, then send your photo, a short bio, and a very brief statement as to your ability and willingness to pull your weight in the financing of this guaranteed blockbuster 2, box 899-B, mail drop, Union Station, Los Angeles, California. I am a well-known Hollywood producer with over 237 movies to my credit. I'm desperate for fresh new faces to star in my next picture, which will go before the cameras in a matter of weeks. Opportunity may very well knock but once, my friend. Contact me today. This is not a joke. It is your destiny calling. It certainly was. And, you know, this scheme had a precursor that you will find in the history books. Just Google it. A man named Arch Hall hatched a scheme to sell parts to wannabe actors in a cheap horror movie. Well, once he got their money, he was ready to skip town. And then the police showed up and they told him the only way to avoid going to jail was to make that movie. And the result was The Creeping Terror, a movie that featured a monster made of carpet remnants that would be pulled over the victims with chewing sound effects. And uh, yeah, that's uh, quite a movie. 
the, the best thing about it is the way that people will like fall down in a road and then the carpet remnants will slowly creep over them like they couldn't get anyway it's it's really <laughs> a lot of fun so minx sort of had to go along with this because this was her only chance of bailing out her husband getting divorced and finally getting her profit percentage if they came in outer space and zuzman desperately needed her for the marquee value in order to sell the film to uh, theaters. Exactly, to get bookings. And can I just jump in and share a little of the plot? Uh, please do, yes, it's great. Well, we open on the planet Zontar in a distant galaxy thousands of miles from Earth. It seems that Zontar is receiving, quote, strange signals from some savage, untamed wilderness on the edge of the universe. Well, Zontar is run by an entity called the Great Guidance. His assistant, Thorax, is instructed to dial in that signal, and he does. And his receiver spews out a raw, leering, bumping and grinding sax ditty called Ain't No Pork in Dem Beans by Honk Henderson and his hot wax saxomaniacs. Well, before their horrified eyes, some demure teens worshipping at his feet mutate into wild-eyed, flailing delinquents bent on trashing the royal palace. Off! Turn it off! yells the great guidance. Thorax obeys, and deprived of this audio drug, the rock-crazed teens collapse in a heap. The great guidance then realizes what a menace rock and roll is, so he orders Thorax and his female assistant, Volika, Minx Devlin, of course, to go to Earth and destroy all teenagers in order to eliminate this sonic menace. Now we cut to Earth, specifically the town of Conformityville. Our young hero, Charles Chuck Osborne Jr., is horrified to discover that his high school site is about to be turned into a hydrogen bomb test center. And Chuck, he and the other Enola Gay high schoolers will be bused 31 miles to the bad part of town to Nat Turner separate but equal high, where no graduate has ever gone on to college since Reconstruction. So he and his fellow teens come up with a plan. He says, hey, kids, we'll host the Steamroller Jackson Rock and Roll Caravan. We'll get all the biggest rock and roll stars to help us raise money to buy back our school. They celebrate their plan by heading for a night spot called the North Pole, the coolest place in Conformityville. <laughs> yes, and as luck would have it, Thorax and Volika crash their spaceship in a vacant lot right next door to the rollicking night spot. Inside, they find the teens going wild for rock and roll. Thorax is about to vaporize the entire nightclub full of teens when he hears Chuck say that every big rock band in America is going to be at the big high school dance. Thorax is delighted. If he waits, he can vaporize every rock and roll band on Earth. Oh, boy. So Thorax orders Volika to follow Chuck home and find out more about the big dance. She does and finds herself sucked into the vortex of his adolescent desire. They kiss, and the cosmic vibration of this kiss is so strong, it's actually felt on Zontar. On the planet, a massive earthquake tosses the ruler off his throne. He recognizes this quake for what it really is, a buckle in the Zontarian genetic purity sphere. He contacts Volika and orders her to come home. She refuses. She loves Chuck. To prove her love, she gives him the blueprints of the atomic vaporizer cannon that Thorax plans to use tomorrow to vaporize the gymnasium and all the rock stars. Yep. Then cut to the night of the concert. 
Thorax sets up his awesome weapon of death in the parking lot. Chuck sees it and positions himself in front of the gym, holding the tiny mirror from a girl's makeup compact. Just as the atomic laser cannon is about to fire, Volika races over, grabs the mirror, and shoves Chuck out of the way. The atomic vaporizer cannon fires, and Volika takes the entire ray and is vaporized. But the gym is saved, well, at least temporarily. Now, as Thorax prepares the atomic vaporizer cannon for his next shot, Chuck races into the gym and gathers the musicians. Their only hope is to play so loudly. They'll create a wall of sound to fend off the death ray. The band kicks off a fast-paced, semi-funky, night train-style instrumental. Chuck picks up a Fender guitar and leads the band. Thorax fires the atomic vaporizer cannon. It comes within a foot of the gym when the rock and roll crescendo starts. The deadly vaporizing ray hovers for a moment and then slowly gets turned back onto Thorax. He's vaporized. The teens go wild. And the words, the beginning... Fill the screen as the film ends and we see Minx's face from heaven smiling down on them. Ooh, what an ending. Well, <laughs> the schedule for this movie was shorter than Sonny Tuff's career. It was filmed in four days, which makes you have to ask, what did they do with the other three days? <laughs> That's right. Uh, money raised from the cast of Incompetence. dollars the cost to produce the film was $29,325. It was released on the bottom half of a double bill with Hillbilly Jailbait and 12 Southern Drive-Ins. Total gross, $9,571. <laughs> and of course, the critics savaged it. Uh, yeah, well, except for the French. Now, here, here's uh, Francois Truffaut, a well-known Minx Devlin lover, writing in Cahir du Cinema. He said, quote, what looks to be incompetence and chaos in Mr. Zuzman's anarchic work is actually the final fatal pinprick in the overinflated balloon of the late unlamented tradition of quality. It is, in fact, a celluloid bludgeon to the head of middle-brow smugness, a postmodern neo-Brechtian satire of a soulless capitalist culture gone mad. It's a Morton hoisting of post-McCarthy's suburbo prodigality on its own petard, a giddy parable that gives up its metaphorical riches only upon repeated viewings, a masterpiece that ranks with the very best films of Jean Renoir, Alfred Hitchcock, Gregory Cava, and Jerry Lewis. Indeed. And if I may, I'd like to share the surprising afterlife of this film. Wow. During the Ed Wood craze that happened in the 1980s and 1990s, Mystery Science Theater and all of that, Destroy All Teenagers was rediscovered. It played film festivals and it even got a special screening during the Dark Cellar of Cinema Night at the Cannes Film Festival. <laughs> oh, boy. OK, so that's this Atomic Bombshell Extra. Skylar DeWolf and I will be back soon with another hidden gem from the life of Minx Devlin. In the meantime, feel free to revisit the original 10-part podcast of The Atomic Bombshell and do your own deep dive by going to Amazon and grabbing a copy of Minx Devlin's riotous tell-all autobiography, The Atomic Bombshell. Thanks so much for listening.